Tonight, as we continue in our Simply the Savior series, the Ten Virgins. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, verse 13 verses. Now, there are some of Jesus' parables that people like to skip. And if they could skip this one very often, this would be one of the ones that they would skip. How many of you know somebody in your life that is procrastinating with making a commitment to Jesus? I got several of them. How many of you have ever met somebody that have said something to the effect, well, you know, when I get really old and I can't sin anymore, then I'll give my life to Jesus? I've had a few of those, too. How many of you know people who think they have an infinite amount of time to get their their life right with the Lord? I've had those people as well. Jesus speaks this parable here in these first 13 verses of Matthew 25 to those people. And it's a parable that we need to understand from a Hebrew context, and so we'll look at what a Hebrew wedding looks like because that's actually the context here. But you don't have an infinite amount of time. Nobody ever does, and no one knows There's two things that no one knows, save God. One is the day when you individually are going to take your last breath. You don't know it. I don't know it. We don't know it. The government doesn't know it. The CIA doesn't know when you're going to die. But I can tell you this. From the very moment you took your first breath, you were on your way to your last breath. The only variable is how many breaths you're going to take in between. Nobody knows the last day for any of us. Furthermore, Scripture actually says that tomorrow is promised to no one. In other words, every morning when you get up, from a human perspective, and people don't like to think about this, from a human perspective, every morning when you get up, you don't know if this is your last day on earth. None of us do. We live in L.A. Traffic alone should cause you to consider that question. You don't know. I don't know. We don't know. Now, the second thing. You see, because many people almost use the second coming of the Lord as a reason to delay. They say, well, you know, Jesus hasn't come and come back. You Christians are always talking about the rapture and then the second coming. So I'm going to wait till the rapture of the church. I'll see the church gone. And then I know that I've got seven years and I'll give my life to the Lord at some point in time during those seven years. But until then, I'm going to do anything I want to do. Because I got time. This parable is for those people. This one speaks those words that all of us need to hear. Because every once in a while, you need to check yourself out. You need to do a little checkup. Kind of look and see where you're at with the Lord. Because many times I think the deception that people deal with is self-deception. 
And that was the case in this parable. Would you pray with me? And let's dig into the word. Father, tonight we, we have not come to be worried or scared or, Lord, made overly concerned. But this parable is a warning. And Lord, there may be some tonight that are in that category of people that we just talked about. Somebody that thinks they have an indefinite amount of time. Or that somehow they are in that category of people of those who will will know when it's time uh, to make that commitment because of the things that they're seeing. And your word is so clear that we're not going to know. We're not going to know individually, and we won't know corporately, Lord, when that, when that last day arrives. There's going to be two walking in the field, and one will be snatched away, and one will stay behind. There's going to be a time that, now, Father, you're going to deal with sin on this earth, and it's going to come unexpectedly as a thief in the night. There's a time that you have appointed for all of us and then there will be judgment. Your word is so clear on these things. And so God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word as we study. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen. Verse 1 here in Matthew 25. And then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins. And so Jesus is now going to speak another kingdom parable. All of the parables really spoke forth into kingdom things. But this one is very, very specific in that it actually talks about the kingdom itself. Who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And so there are some assumptions here that all of these ten ladies were actually in some way, shape, or form looking for the bridegroom. And that describes the entire world. You know, some people are looking for God one way, some people are looking for God another way, but most people have at least some desire to be looking for some kind of relationship with the Lord. And so in this parable, now five of them were wise, and so it becomes very clear early on in this parable that that there are exactly two groups of people. Five wise, and notice five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And again, how many roads are there? Two. How many gates are there? Two. How many types of people are on this earth? Exactly two. There's believers and not believers. There's no kind of, sort of, semi-saved folks. You're either in or you're out. You're either saved or you're not. There, there, there aren't any such things as, you know, sort of believers. And so Jesus makes this very clear. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, the cry was heard. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been woken up from a dead sleep. But when that happens, you're not quite sure what time it is, right? And you start looking for the alarm clock. You're like, what time is it? You know, silly dogs, how come you're barking right now? You know, you kind of go through those things to where you think to yourself, what time is it? 
But at midnight, the cry was heard, and the, behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. It's not a very opportune time, is it? It's like, couldn't you wait until like 10.35 the following morning? Could we plan this? Couldn't we map this out a little better? I didn't know. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the, the foolish said to the wise, Oops. Yikes. Boy, I, I sure wish I'd have known this was going to happen now. How come you didn't let us know that the bridegroom was going to come tonight? The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No. Nada. Can't happen. There's no way. Lest there shouldn't be enough for us and you. But rather go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. I want you to notice that the door was shut. It wasn't left kind of ajar. And you can get a little glimpse of this if you remember the story of the Ark of Noah. God spends all kinds of time, 100 years, a little bit longer than that, while Noah's building the ark. And he's saying, look, I'm going to make it rain. It's not going to go good for you. You need to repent. But God saw that the world was continually evil. All they thought about was evil things. And God gave opportunity. He said, enter in and be saved. But once the door is shut, it's over. And so as the floodwaters rose, people were beating on the outside of the ark. They were hollering at poor Noah and his family, let us in, open the door. And Noah said, Mm-mm, can't happen. The door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open it unto us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This is one of those repeated declarations by the Lord that reminds us those people that we talked about as we began tonight are on very, very, very rocky, very thin very shaky ground because nobody knows. We don't know the time. God has immense patience and up to now he's waited 2,000 years, give or take a handful of years. God has waited 2,000 years while mankind has kind of fiddled around in a very, very bad way. Taken advantage of one another, done all kinds of evil things. And God's actually said to us, look, I I am going to send my son Jesus back to this earth, but you're not going to know when that's going to happen. You're going to know a handful of things. You're going to know that once 
the body of Christ is snatched away, there's going to be a period of time that we call the tribulation. Seven years, that final week of God's economy uh, being poured out on this, this world before he comes back and Jesus uh, returns to deal with sin permanently. But the next time, just like the first time, nobody's going to know when Jesus is coming. When Jesus came the first time, nobody received him. Though Daniel had actually prophesied of the time that Jesus would come into Jerusalem. We'd been given so many windows by the Old Testament prophets of what would happen, what things would look like, how Jesus would get there. Remember, we even knew that Zechariah reminded us that, that Jesus would come into town on a donkey and Jesus rides into town on a donkey. We knew ultimately that he would be bruised and chastised and beaten we, we had all of these things spoken to us about the life of Christ. And, and here people still missed it the first time. Now imagine none of those things have been told to us about his second coming. We have zero details other than he is coming and he's going to come as a thief in the night and nobody's going to know when it's going to happen. That's what we know. And so for those people that you know, those people that, that keep saying things like, well, you know, I, well, you know, when I get old and I can't sin much, you know, and I kind of run out of the capacity to have fun, as the world calls it, then I'll think about this whole religion thing. This parable is for them. It would come at a time when they didn't expect it. But Jesus would give us an idea of what the world would look like during that time. And the setting for this parable is, is a Hebrew, a Jewish wedding. There's a couple of things you need to know, really three of them. First is it was divided really into three unique parts. And they're different than what we understand in, in our Western society as, as a wedding. And it began with the very first part, which would be the engagement. Most often uh, it was arranged by the fathers of the bride, the groom. Uh, they would set forth, in essence, a price that price would be paid. There'd be a contract that was literally drafted up. And the couple, if they had anything to do with it, had very little to do with it. Almost no direct involvement. And so from that perspective, the father controlled the whole thing. It had nothing to do with the bride. It didn't have anything to do with the groom. The father controlled the timing of everything. Do you remember what Jesus said of that day? No one knows. Only the Father knows. He's picturing the Hebrew wedding. You know, Dad's going to know when it's going to happen. The second stage, which is unique in our culture, was the betrothal. And during the betrothal, the marriage ceremony in which the bride and the groom exchanged their vows in the presence of the family, that happened before they were actually legally bonded together. They were betrothed at first. But as far as the people were concerned, they were already considered a married couple. That's why when Mary was found to be with child, it was such a stain on the family. Because as far as everyone was concerned, they were betrothed and so they looked at it as though they were actually married already, even though the marriage had not been consummated yet. And so at that point, the couple's considered marriage, a relationship could only be broken from then on by divorce. Sometimes they, they 
lived in that state of betrothal sometimes for years. The husband happened to die during the betrothal period. The bride was considered a widow, although the marriage had not actually physically uh, been, been consummated. Uh, and it can last for months, sometimes a year. It was established by the fathers. They would basically set forth and, okay, we want to see how this works out. The groom would establish him in, himself in business or trade or farming, would make provision for a place for the couple to live, build onto mom and dad's house. There would be all these things going on. And then the third part, at the end of the betrothal period, was the actual wedding feast. And this is where it gets kind of crazy. Because the father would decide, tonight's a good night. Let's bring out the wedding party. The wedding party had grabbed their wedding garments. They would grab their wedding torches. And then they would go basically hijack the bride and the groom. And then bring them together. Festivities could last for a week or more. The groom coming with his groomsmen to the bride's house. The brides were waiting with her. The bride and the groom, their attendants would parade through the streets with their torches lit. And finally, what we would call the best man would come and grab the groom's hand and say, look, here's your bride. But during that whole time, that whole betrothal period, the bride was supposed to be ready because the bride never knew when the wedding was going to take place. Now, if you do that to your daughters, they'll shoot you. Here's the date. Here's when it's happening. It's going to be at 10 o'clock. It's going to be on Saturday the 19th, and that's what it is. But in a Hebrew wedding, not so much. Dad was watching. Dad was waiting. Dad was seeing. Is this young man, has he proven himself? Because I don't want to give away my bride until this is ready. And so the bride would live literally in a perpetual state of readiness at any point in time. The gown would be ready. The house would be ready. Everything would be ready. And then finally the father would go, It's time! And the wedding would take place. And the couple would then be together and left alone for the first time. But it happened like that. And that was the picture that Jesus is referring to. And so now you can kind of see what the Lord was talking about. Okay, here's the wedding party. The wedding party's supposed to be ready. The wedding party's supposed to have oil for their torches. And by the way, the word that's used here in the original language is actually a word for torch, not a word for lamp. And that would have been what was used. It was normally cloth wrapped around a stick. And that stick would be dipped in oil. Because it wasn't like a little oil lamp like they'd be carrying around. It was literally a torch. It was supposed to be a big event. And people would carry the torch in their hand. And they would run through the streets. And here's my, my daughter's ready to be married. And here comes the groom. And they'd be brought together. And she would be carried away, spirited away on this thing that kind of looks like a, you know, a ladder turned on its side. Little chair sitting on it. You see, so Jesus addresses first the bridesmaid. So the kingdom of heaven is likened to these ten virgins. And in the bridal party, it was supposed to be girls that were not yet married. They kind of all got into the, the whole wedding thing. The world wasn't ready to accept the Lord when he came the first time. 
Matter of fact, very few actually did. His own people rejected him, even though uh, we, we knew so many things about the Lord. When you run through the Old Testament and, and you realize how much information that everyone had, the world had, especially the Hebrew people had about what the Messiah would do when he came the first time. Micah told us where he'd be born. We knew he'd be born of a virgin. We knew he'd be of the tribe of David. We, we knew so many things about Jesus. And yet, nobody was, there were very few people were ready. When he comes the second time, they will even be less ready than the first time. And there seems to be an indication, you can't take it too literally, but there seems to be an indication that there's an awful lot of people who say they're ready. There's a lot of people wandering around the earth right now tonight who profess that they're Christians. They will say with their mouth, yeah, I'm a Christian. But they haven't got an ounce of oil. They're wandering around talking like they, they are Christians, but nothing in their life says that there's any work of the Holy Spirit. And so in that preparation time, when the Lord appears that second time, remember as far as, as, far as the church knows, the church is going to be raptured out and then people are actually going to, they'll, they'll be going, okay, well, I got some time. There will be people that maybe sat in a church setting much like this. Yeah, well, we were studying the book of Revelation. I know the rapture is going to happen. Then I'm going to have seven years to do whatever I want. Oh, my goodness. Don't let that be you. While the timing is going to be fairly clear at that point in time, the difficulty of receiving Christ is going to be immeasurably more difficult than it is right now tonight. Because tonight, you can bow the knee, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, allow him to be Lord, live your life for him. It's pretty simple. But then, you're not even going to be able to eat unless you pledge allegiance to the Antichrist. You're not going to be able to buy, you won't be able to take care of your family. You're going to wish to die and not be able to die. So, if you know somebody that thinks that waiting is a good idea, I would highly encourage you to remind them that waiting is not a good idea. Because right now, we're under the age of grace. We, we can receive freely that faith gift that God gives us. It gives us faith so that we can actually believe. But then, it's going to be a lot more difficult. When he appears, when he finally comes back again, it's over. The door's shut. This is so important for us today because there's so many people playing Christian, pretending to be Christians, saying with their lips that they're believers, but everything that they do says they're not believers. That should bother every Christian. If you can live your life as you please and it doesn't bother you, if there's no conviction of the Holy Spirit, then you're supposed to be questioning whether you're actually one of God's kids or not. You're supposed to be looking at your, at your oil and going, I don't have any. You see, as with all of Jesus' parables, he, he's being very pointed here. The warning is plain, it's simple. It was complete. 
And so Jesus says, look, <laughs> these, these people all took their lamps. They got out their torches and they're, they're ready. So they're identifying, if you will, that, that they believe, they think, that they're actually Christians. How many people do you know that claim to be a Christian and yet their life does not bear witness to the fact that they're actually a believer? It's a very dangerous place to be. Because here's the problem. If you are saved, you don't really know it. Somebody asked me, I think after second service, you know, we were talking about this whole concept of how do you know that you're actually one of God's kids. I said, well, at the end of the day, if you have conviction of sin and righteousness and you have a desire to do things God's way and being pleasing to God matters to you and you have a desire to keep his commandments and you love the Lord with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and there's been a change in your life, I said, then you have what we call assurance. You, you have that understanding that your life has been transformed and there's something that's actually happened. But here's the flip side of it. If you don't have any of those things going on, then you actually don't know. You have no assurance whatsoever. That's not meant to scare anybody unduly. That's just simply to say, when you look at your life, there ought to be a measurable, tangible thing that's happened to you as a believer. So when people like our presidential candidates say they're Christians, but nothing in their life says that they actually love the Lord and a vast majority of what they believe flies in the face of what Scripture says, then they ought to be very, very worried about where they're going when they die. It should concern them. It should concern anyone. And so these ten virgins were all professed believers. And those outward lamps, you've met people, they come to church all the time. They even know how to talk Christianese. They have a really nice Bible. They probably even have a fish or a dove on the back of their car. But there's not a single thing in their life. There's not one thing that you can point to that says there's any work of the Spirit in their life. They're Christians really in name only. It's a dangerous place to be. And we need to be careful. It should cause us to, to check and see where we're actually at with the Lord. And again, I, I share this with you because so much of the church is afraid. They're, because they get to this place. And let me just share what my heart is with this. A lot of Christians get to the place where they almost feel like they're sinning by questioning someone else as to whether they're actually walking with the Lord. Well, I don't want to judge them. And while it's true that we should not judge their salvation, we can look at the fruit and say, you know what? All of that fruit is not really all that good. There's kind of an issue with the fruit that's coming out of your life. It doesn't look like Jesus. You might want to check and see what vine you're grafted into. That's not a bad thing, nor is it judgmental. It's exactly what Jesus said we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be fruit inspectors. Don't be afraid to be a fruit inspector. You might save somebody's eternity. When, when you see that friend of yours and they're still strung out on some kind of drug, 
They're still in multiple relationships with people that they're not married to. They can't complete a sentence without using the worst of all foul language, and they don't care. You need to ask them what kind of water's in their spring. Because that's not something that's going to be well-pleasing to the Lord. It doesn't mean to be legalistic. It doesn't mean to be judgmental. And it does not mean that you're saved by works. It means that if you're saved, that the works of your life should look like something that glorifies the Lord. And so Jesus speaks these things to us in this parable. They were in darkness. They weren't in light. That's a simple thing. Throughout the parables, Jesus talked about things we've already covered them. Wheat and tares, right? He talks about salt and light. He talks about various kinds of soil. He's speaking about all these things for a reason, for a purpose. A message of this parable is not popular. It wasn't popular in Jesus' day either. It wasn't one of those, oh, please tell us the parable of the ten virgins. No, people didn't want to hear it then either. Because they want to go about their life believing that they're okay with God. Well, I'll just square it away someday. Or worse yet, they think they can do it after they take their last breath. Or after the Lord's here. I've had people ask me, well, you know, can I pray somebody out of hell? No, you can't. That decision you make while you still have breath. And you don't get to do a do-over once you're gone. It's a one-time thing. You see, so very often we kind of let people ride on these types of things. We just say, well, you know, they'll get it sooner or later. Please don't do that. Because that person's eternity weighs in the balance of the decision that they make while they're still here. And once you leave, you can't help them. And once they leave, they can't help themselves. You see, these foolish bridemaids were basically in false confidence. They had the lamp. They had the garment. They were actually kind of sort of looking, but they weren't ready. They were unprepared. And so this parable is about being unprepared for the bridegroom. And you can look at it two ways. One is, you actually are a believer. And the other is, you're not a believer. Either way is not good. Because one, you lack assurance. One, you actually lack salvation. Obviously, that's a whole bunch worse. But I want to be certain of where I'm going. I, I want to know. I, I want my life to bear such witness about who I am in Christ that no one would mistake whether I'm a believer or not. No one would ask me those questions or ask you those questions. There should be no doubt about who we are in Christ is really what Jesus is saying. There there shouldn't be any stain in our lives that we're aware of. Are we talking about sinless perfection? Of course not. All of us have issues. All of us have those areas to where we could look at, you know, I could do better in that area. But here's the deal. You at least have some oil. These gals had zero. They didn't have enough to light the torch. They lit their torch, it went right out because there was no oil. There was zero oil. 
And notice how Jesus addresses this. He, he's saying, look, once you're gone, it's too late. Once the bridegroom's here, it's over. The second thing he focuses in really on the bridegroom himself, and he says, at midnight, the cry was heard. So now you can go back to the Hebrew wedding. At midnight, father says, it's time. Son, you need to go get your bride. One of, those, one of these days, God's going to do that. And we're not going to know when it is. And then all those ladies got up. And the foolish said, give us some of your oil. And I want to share this with you. There are an awful lot of people that believe in salvation by osmosis. That if you just hang around near Christians long enough that somehow you get saved yourself. Or if your parents are Christians, you'll end up being a Christian. Or if your aunt's uncle's friend's dog got saved at some point in time, uh, you too will be saved. Now I want you to notice what Jesus said about this. Look, you've you got to have your own oil. You can't borrow somebody's. It's too late to purchase it at that point in time. He says, you've got to have your own. Every one of us must make that decision singularly and individually. There's no such thing as corporate salvation. There isn't salvation by organization. Just belonging to the church doesn't make you a child of God. It doesn't matter what group you belong to. No denomination saves. No lineage, no heritage. Every one of us must choose this day whom we will serve. And Jesus adds to that point. He says, look, no, there's not going to be enough for everybody. You only get what you brought. Whatever you have, that's what you can count on. They were well aware of the engagement, well aware of the betrothal. Those periods are over. The final festivities are about to begin, and they were unprepared. When it happens, it's going to be too late. You see, Matthew 24, Jesus himself said, look, the, the Son of Man's going to come on the clouds of the sky. It's not like we're going to get like an email in your inbox. <laughs> Jesus is coming back two weeks from today. He's just going to come back. They weren't aware that their lack of oil was going to cause them a problem because they weren't concerned about having any of it to begin with. They just wanted to be identified in the wedding party. And if you've been to very many weddings, you know that there's kind of like a wedding sickness. As soon as you put people together in a wedding party, it's like everybody has this thing, well, I just want to be a part of a wedding. It's, it's a great festive time. It, it seems to bring out joy. And people want to hang around that. Sometimes people are there for the wrong reason. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. He's like, look, don't get caught up in the festivities. You need to actually be one of the attendants who's ready. You need to have your torch out. Paul's advice was this to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. And it says there, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Do you not recognize for yourselves but Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. The New International Version puts it straight the way it actually is. Look, you need to check it out for yourself. See whether you're ready. 
Is there any oil for your lamp? You see, there are a lot of churchy people. And churchy people very often are self-deceived. They think they're ready, but they're not ready. In that day, you don't want to be caught without oil. In that day, you don't want to be leaning on anything other than being ready. And praise God that comes by grace and through faith. Amen? Because if it's just about us collecting something or having something or being something, that's not going to work out well for any of us. But you do have to receive that grace. If you've received that grace, then your life is transformed. Your mind is renewed. And just like physical life, spiritual life is a direct individual gift from God and it is non-transferable. Any of you ever bought one of those airline tickets? You know, you get it on cheaptickets.com and then you find out you can't go and then you find out that you spent your money for nothing because it's completely non-transferable. Salvation is like that. It's non-transferable. The ticket is good for you and you alone. That's it. You can't sign it off and say, hey, I'd like my son or my daughter or my wife or my grandma to have this ticket when I, you know, it's only for you. Salvation can't be bought. And so the buying of oil that's mentioned here is is the very thing that we're actually reminded to do. Look, we have to count the cost, amen? I have to pick up my cross. I have to follow Jesus. It is costly because it's going to cost you your life. And in doing so, if you give up yours, Christ is going to give you his. It's a trade, in other words. You trade in the old you for the new you. And that new you comes by grace and through faith. Same idea is used in a couple of the other parables. He talks about treasure. Look, that treasure is a gift. He's going to give you the treasure. But you have to take the treasure. It's going to require of you total, complete surrender. The deepest type of conviction. And it should keep us ready. Keep us willing. Keep us able. So if you have one of those people in your life that claims that they're a Christian and yet you can't see a smidgen of light burning anywhere in their life, you might want to have them read this parable. Say, what do you think that means? What do you think it's saying? Have you really received that grace gift? You see, if you've received it, then you relinquish your old life. So very often people will say something like, well, you know, it's, it's just grace. So it's all grace, so I can do whatever I want. No, actually you can't. Because you give up the old you. You put off the old man. You put on the new. It's total. It's complete surrender. It's lordship. That's why we use that word. It's mastery. He's the master. We do what he says. Luke's gospel in chapter 6, it says this in verse 47. Everyone who comes to me, Jesus said, hears my words and acts on them. And I'll show you who he's like. You remember this? He's like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the torrent burst against the house, couldn't shake it because it was built well. But he who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like the man who builds his house on the ground without any foundation. 
and the torrent burst against it, and it was immediately collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. You see, you can tell whether the house is good or the house is bad. People who build their lives on the house that is Jesus Christ stand strong. They stand firm. May not be perfect, but they're going to be okay when the storms of life come. That's why Paul would write to the church at Corinth in the first letter there in chapter 3, verse 11. It says, you know, look, for no other foundation can anyone lay but that which is laid. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. That's how you know. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's to build on him, which is going to be gold and silver and precious things, not wood, hay, and stubble. Without Christ, you don't have the necessary grace. Without Christ, you, don't, you won't have the imputed righteousness. Without Christ, you're not going to have God's holiness. Without Christ in you, you're not going to have that hope of glory. Without Christ, you're not a Christian. So you need to make sure you have Christ. You need to have oil. You have that work of the Holy Spirit that's happened, that transaction that occurred when you got saved. You see, five of these ladies were kind of sham attendants. They were dressed right. They said the right things. They even had the right pieces. But they weren't actually part of the wedding party. Somebody you know is in that category, you need to tell them. Don't let them believe that they're a Christian just because, you know, they, they went to church at some point in time during their life. Ask them if they have any oil. Are you ready to see the Lord? If he came tonight, would you be ready to see the Lord? You may only have a little bit of oil, but if you got some oil, you're good. But if all you got is a torch and no oil, you need to square that away. You need to ask God to give you some oil. That work of the Holy Spirit in you as God wills to do his good pleasure. And so Jesus ends this thing with a, with a very direct warning. And he basically says this. He says, be on alert because you don't know the day or the hour. And being on alert means that you're topping off your oil. You're checking your dipstick every once in a while. Amen. I don't know how many of you have ever had the pleasure of running an engine out of oil. Seems like those old, you know, back in the 60s, my first car was a 1961 Dodge Lancer. And I, it, it burned almost as much oil as gasoline, which was kind of, you know, was kind of nice. You know, you could just, you'd fill up the tank with gasoline and you'd, you know, dump as many quarts. You, you didn't use the dipstick. You just waited until you could see it at the top of the, top of the crankcase, you know, you'd, it's like you just filled the thing up because it would pour out almost as fast or burn it, one of the two. But if you didn't check your oil every once in a while, you, you kind of heard that, that two or three clunks and then bad things happened and it just seized up and didn't run anymore. You, you can't check your oil after the motor ceases. It doesn't do you a bit of good. It's over. You've got to check your oil while there's still time Dad, some. Because you find out you're out, you need to get some oil. Now the worship team come back up. I want to leave you with this. I want to bum anybody out. Hopefully I didn't do that. But rather challenge you 
to make sure that when you have people in your life who claim to know the Lord, that you're honest with them. That you're honest with them. I remember a time in my life, and I'll just share this little story with you. I remember a time in my life when I would tell people I was a Christian. And I look back on it, I go, you know, I don't know that I could have pointed to a single thing in my life that was actually something that looked like it came from the Lord. Now, I know now, because of where I'm at, that all that time, I was actually a believer. But I would have had zero assurance at that time if the Lord Jesus came back that I had any oil. So I kind of wished that someone had said to me, you know, hey, um, you know, you might want to check your dipstick. You might want to check and see whether you're actually walking with the Lord or not. Because you got lots of nice bumper stickers. You got all the ones that the real Christians actually have. But there's no oil in your car. If somebody had told me that when I was 18 years old. Hmm, who knows what God could have done with my life. And Instead, I, I checked my dipstick when I was about 30. Boy, I wish I had those years back. I wish somebody had enough guts to walk up and say, Jeff, you know, that's, there's not a thing in your life that looks like you're walking with Jesus. That's a real friend. That's somebody who, who actually loves somebody, who cares about them. Be kind, be bold, and ask people every once in a while to check their oil. Amen? I want to pray. I'm going to have some pastors come forward. and Maybe you're here tonight, and what I said resonated because you really don't know if you've got any oil. Well, here's the good news. You can square that away before you leave because you can invite the Lord in. And you begin that walk. If you're here and maybe you kind of have, you looked at your dipstick and you can barely tell that there's any oil on the end of it, you can square that away tonight as well. And just simply ask him to fill you up. And he will. Because he delights to do that. He delights to give good gifts to his kids. Maybe you've got somebody in your life that you really need to pray for because they're in that crowd of people that thinks they're okay with God. They have all kinds of time. And you just lift them up before the Lord because you're not sure what would happen if tonight was the last night and the church was taken out of here. Because it isn't going to be easy to be a believer when the Antichrist is running things. So there could be, for many of you, lots to pray about. So we'll have some pastors come forward so that you can pray with them. For the rest of us, Be challenged and be encouraged to be bold with your faith. Don't let people think the wrong thing about our Jesus. Because though his salvation is free, it surely isn't cheap. It's the most valuable thing that you'll ever possess in your entire life is salvation by grace and through faith. That's the one thing that everybody needs. The good news is, It's a free gift. Make sure you've received it, then walk in it. Check your oil. Amen.
going to pray, and then we're going to worship. If you need prayer, we're going to have pastors waiting. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for reaching down from the heights of heaven to this earth and for imparting salvation by grace and through faith to us. Lord, we're so grateful that you've topped off our oil and God, we pray that we'd never be wandering around with anything less than a full tank. God, that our torches would be ready and our lives would be prepared. Lord, help us to not ever fall into that trap of being ill-prepared. So God, I pray for any tonight that maybe came to this place and they wonder what this relationship with Jesus is all about. It's simple. But it's going to cost them everything because they're going to have to trade in their current life for that new life in Christ. They have to confess that sin and be done with it. And so God, pray that you would help those who might need to make that decision to just simply come forward and be prayed for, be prayed with, and that they would pray and invite you, Jesus, into their life. Because your word declares, if we'll confess you before men, you'll confess us before our Father. And so we, we get that initial filling of that oil. God, we thank you that you help us keep the tank full. So bless us as your people. Encourage us, strengthen us, we pray. Make us bold with our faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Would you stand?